0: and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I will be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Today, we welcome back our guest, Diane Luce, who previously appeared to set the stage and then dive into McCarthy's first novel, The Orchard Keeper. We'll discuss his fourth novel, Sutri, often regarded as one of his masterpieces. Dr. Luce is a founding member and past president of the Cormac McCarthy Society. Together with Edwin Arnold, she has edited two collections of articles on McCarthy, and she is the author of Reading the World, Cormac McCarthy's Tennessee Period, published in 2009. In the past decade, she's been writing a two-volume study based on archival research of McCarthy's writing life at Random House, several portions of which have appeared as articles in Resources for American Literary Study and the Cormac McCarthy Journal. Dr. Luce is also interested in the ways in which McCarthy's interest in visual art informs his imagery, and she has published studies on how this appears in Blood Meridian and The Road. Her most recent article is Creativity, Madness, and the Light that Dances Deep in Train. Glimpses of the Passenger, from Cormac McCarthy's 1980 correspondence in the Cormac McCarthy Journal. She holds faculty emeritus status from Midlands Tech in Columbia, South Carolina. Diane, welcome back to the podcast.
1: It's great to be back, Scott. Thanks thanks for having me again.
0: In earlier episodes, we discussed how you discovered McCarthy and have been reading him since before, well before the publication of Suttery. As I recall, was it before Child of God when you... Found him or around um, that time? It wasn't
1: before. Child of God was the first one that I read.
0: Okay, which is going going pretty well back to the uh, the the early seventies when you were five six years old. You're already reading McCarthy.
1: <laughs> Maybe not quite that young.
0: <laughs> we have discussed many times the difference between the pre the membership in the society and interest in McCarthy before the Border Trilogy and Before the Road is the two, and I guess before the film of No Country for Old Men is kind of hallmarks of how he's grown. Can you describe what it's been like to see his reputation and his readership grow?
1: When I first started working on him, um, sort of together with Chip Arnold and um, Rick Wallach was also involved in the organization of the society, there were not many people who even knew who McCarthy was. They, They weren't He didn't have a broad readership. There were very few people writing about him. It was difficult for Chip and me to find enough articles for that first collection that we did, Perspectives on Cormac McCarthy. So there was a sense that we had discovered this, this gem that no one knew about. Hmm. And there was a real sense of dedication to trying to, to try to broaden his. His reception and and his acknowledgement, and to establish him as as some someone who would be part of a permanent canon of American greats. And anytime you launch into a new area of research and study, there's there's always some sense of well, will this be acknowledged by other people? Will will it take take on? And so it's been tremendously gratifying to see what has happened. At the same time, I, I do want to say that there were other people that we didn't know about who were promoting his career right. all along. Um, many of the writers in the Random House circle, certainly his his editors, people like Bob Coles, who discovered him pretty early and consistently reviewed him. So there were a lot of other people in other fields of right. endeavor who were also working steadily to try to Um, make it possible for him to work, getting grants, and also to promote his reception.
0: Well, and I guess we're talking about two different kinds of readership. One is in the overall readership. And when we think of popular or significant writers, then we're talking about things like sales and overall, uh, how the overall American public thinks of you, perhaps. And Mm -hmm. then on the other hand, we have the, the reputation in the academy, Mm -hmm. And in terms of people who are doing scholarship for them. So I think you almost need the approach from both tiers or uh, to achieve what he's achieved. I was thinking, and you and I maybe talked about this before, a few years ago when I was thinking of incredibly significant American writers who have had a society dedicated to them and a journal dedicated to them while they're still living. And the only two I could really come up with in the second half of the 20th century and the first 20 years of 21st century are McCarthy and Toni Morrison, who Mm has, of course, since passed away. And I know Philip Roth has a large, very loyal following, but I'm not sure he's had the level of scholarship and academic interest dedicated to him that we've seen dedicated to McCarthy and Morrison.
1: Yeah, and... My feeling is those two are probably the greatest of the late 20th and early 21st century. I mean, they they really deserved to have that kind of attention.
0: Absolutely. So when we when we think about Sutri, our our novel here, and, and I will give you a spoiler, this was my gateway to McCarthy, foisted on me by a um professor whose opinion and interest I very much trusted. I, uh, it's the one that sold me on him and addicted me to him. And it's the reason I guess I'm here today talking to you over the infernal medium of the computer. <laughs> and it, it is a book that I think elicits different reactions from readers than most of his other books. And it, in many ways, in terms of its, its plot, its focus, its style, it stands alone in his body of work, and and one of those is, of course, here we have a novel about a guy who's kind of down and out in Knoxville in 1950-51. His age is not so dissimilar from McCarthy's. I guess he's a little older, but he's growing up in the same place around uh, the, the same time, more or less, and so there might be a tendency for readers to ascribe biographical background. This book, and I know that's very often a bad assumption to make with many writers and in many books. But what do you think about that? Where Sutri is concerned,
1: well, he certainly was drawing on his experience in Knoxville, and there are some biographical similarities. But I do think that it's very easy to overstate how biographical this novel is. I would say that it's no more autobiographical than The Orchard Keeper and perhaps less autobiographical than The Road.
0: Huh.
1: But if you take it as an objective correlative <laughs> of McCarthy's recognition of the kinds of challenges to achieving a mindset that allowed him to become a creative writer,
2: hmm.
1: I think that's a good way of, of looking at the, the autobiographical elements of it. But there are also some some truly biographical things that get reflected in it, and it does seem that when he started writing, when he at the beginning of his career, he first thought that he would write out of his experience in that rural area south of Knoxville. Hmm. And so you have The Orchard Keeper, which is very indebted to some of his childhood experiences and certainly his, his feelings um, about the land and the people that he was growing up among. And then very soon after that, he seems to have decided, well, I've done that novel, but the other primary environment of my youth was the city itself. And so then he turned for his second novel to Knoxville. Some of the most directly autobiographical things in the novel are the places that he visits, like the Roman Catholic Church that's up on top of the hill above the marketplace, and the high school that that he went to. Those descriptions of those places certainly are based on his deep knowledge and familiarity with them. He also attended the University of Tennessee, but the novel only slightly nods to that. It's just kind of a, a vague background to Sutri's learnedness. Right, He certainly learned the, the streets and the business environments of downtown Knoxville um, when he was a boy. He used to, all of the McCarthy children used to ride into town with their father who worked at the TVA, which was right below the church, and they would leave from there and take the streetcar out to the high school. And then when they came back in, they usually had about an hour to an hour and a half to wait for the bus that would take them back out, the county bus that would take them back out to the Vestal area. That's a long wait. It is a long wait. So sometimes, a lot of the times they spent that in the library and McCarthy was just absorbing all kinds of things that he was interested in. But I also imagine and part of this is imagination, I, I can see him walking around those streets and just becoming totally familiar with all of that walkable and Knoxville is very walkable yes. from the church down to the to the riverfront. He he also knew or at least knew of some of the um, some of the people in the novel. Jim Long, uh, Jimbo, J Bone, J Bone was his best friend in high school. They met at the church. They met through through the school, and they they were very very close friends when he was a child. Like Sutry, um, McCarthy was at odds with his father. His father was that Yale educated attorney. Didn't seem to know what to make of of McCarthy, and probably most significantly, he was not very sympathetic with McCarthy's choice to be a writer. Hmm. He really had in mind something more like a professional career for him, and McCarthy certainly had the ability to do that. There is absolutely no evidence that I know of that McCarthy ever spent any time in jail.
0: Right.
1: Um, So, that is not an explanation for McCarthy's alienation from from his father and from his family. However, he was divorced very soon after he started writing this novel, and that cost him his association with his first son, and I think that loss of his son, I don't mean to death, but, but the loss of a daily interaction with his son um, has been very influential on this novel and on Outer Dark as well. Um, And then finally, I might say that early in the novel, Sutri identifies himself as a pale pagan. Yes. And we do know now, now that the archival materials are available, that during the time when McCarthy was writing Outer Dark, which would have overlapped with the time that he was writing this novel, um, he considered himself a thoroughgoing agnostic. I don't know that that has stayed that way, but but he did go through some sort of rejection of the Roman Catholic religion as a young man.
0: Well, and of course, agnosticism is an interesting gray area because it all depends who you talk to, how they define it.
1: Mm -hmm. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen
1: to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest
0: novels. Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, bestselling author of the Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer Podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our
1: lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on
0: Instagram, at Happy Writer Podcast. It's a rejection of a particular uh, spiritual doctrine or a particular spiritual approach, but it's not denying there is legitimacy to spiritual doctrines or approaches. It's just a kind of a lack of personal conviction where those things are concerned. So I think mm-hmm. sometimes people use agnosticism and atheism, you know, interchangeably, and they're very different terms. And I suspect no, they're not I, with McCarthy particularly we'd have to be careful where we put him on that spectrum. I think so too. And again, if, if his writing career is 60 years long, then figuring out who he, where he was with the orchard keeper and where he was with the road, he's not the same guy necessarily That's uh, right in, in those two places.
1: And I think you see throughout his career in every single book, a very strong spiritual sense. Those are questions he's dealing with over and over and over again. And there are even ways where you could say that Satri is a deeply religious book. I'll just throw that out there.
0: and yeah, We can come I, back to sure. that maybe. I, th- I think so. <laughs> uh, you, you started to address this earlier. And so as he's getting to, he writes about McAnally Flats. He he kind of comes to know some, some of the people he writes about beyond um, J Bone representing Jim Long. A couple of these other people are based on real people, right? Red Callahan.
1: Yes. Yeah. Red Callahan. Um, Callahan. Excuse me. Yeah. Hoghead Henry. There I, are. There let, are. Let other... me pause you
0: for one okay. second. I will go to my grave happy that there's a real person named Hoghead Henry <laughs> in the world.
1: Uh, McCarthy seemed to like tipping the hat to these characters, these people right. that he that he knew. So a lot of a lot of the people in the novel are based on people he knew. Even Harrogate seems to be based on someone he knew, but uh, (laughs) but not identified. You know, the the names are changed to protect the guilty.
0: There's one Harrogate and one Harrogate only. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So you have the benefit, just like the last guest I had on Michael Cruz, of having spent an awful lot of time in the archives and working through those, you've published some wonderful articles on this in in Cormac McCarthy journal and other places. And, and of course you have a great chapter on, on such in your book, or I should say a great, great section on it. Could you tell us a little bit about his overall composition and editorial process, how he worked his way through and, and what you've learned from these kind of background research and archival research?
1: In general, um, he worked without outlines. He didn't do the sort of thing that is taught to creative writing students in fine arts Mm -hmm. programs these days, and he more or less taught himself to write. But you can see when, when there are rough drafts, you can see him working his way toward the form of his novel. Sometimes he just he has said. He he sits down and he writes whatever he feels like writing. Mm-hmm. And then he hones and refines and shapes and sees where it's going. For Sutry, we don't, unfortunately, we don't have the first draft. We probably don't even have the second draft. But we do have enough information to sort of piece together how this gigantic book came together for him. One thing I think that it's interesting to note is that in the front matter to the book, he expresses thanks to the American Academy of Arts and Letters, which gave him a Rome Travel Award in 1965, the Rockefeller Foundation, which supported him in 66 to 68 while he was living in Europe, and the Guggenheim Foundation, which gave him fellowships in 1969 and again in 1976. And those acknowledgements uh, really sort of highlight that his work, his active work on Suttry, spanned the years during which he was also completing and publishing all of his other novels in his first screenplay up, up to that right. point. When he applied for the Rockefeller Grant in March of 1966, in his application, he indicated that he had begun the novel five years earlier, or in 1961. I think that's interesting because Woodward suggests that it began at the same time as The Orchard Keeper, but from McCarthy's own words, it began in a couple, maybe a couple of years later. And when he applied to the Guggenheim Foundation in the fall of 68, he said that he had been writing it for six years, which would put the beginning about 1962. And we know it wasn't published until 1979. By the time he applied for that Rockefeller grant, um, this was 66. He had 700 pages of raw material for the novel, and it was raw material. He didn't consider right. it anything anything like finished by then. And he wrote in his statement of the proposed work that he considered *Sutry* mas- uh, to be his masterwork so far, his most consuming project ever since its inception. Uh, when he set forth the aim of the book, he wrote, By means of the characters, the city itself must be transformed into a living organism. The overall effect aims not at total knowledge of life in this city, but at an understanding of what life here would mean to a person who was totally aware. In a sense, then, these characters are the embodiment of a single soul. Hmm. Then he introduced Michael, Sutry, Harrogate, and Ab Jones, uh, quoting passages about them from his draft. He had about 70 pages of the draft with him when he was in Europe, um, and so he was limited, but he, he right. picked out things that he already had written and had with him. And he identified Knoxville as the novel's cohesive force, hmm. and so he, con- he closed his application by descri- uh, with paragraphs that described the city. So, I think this application, which really hasn't been used very much in scholarship yet, it represents his most candid statement of the conception of the book. He, he doesn't like to talk about his work. So, I think this is no. a pretty important statement of where he was in 1966, what he thought he was going to shape the novel to be. And it includes, with those excerpts, it includes the very earliest draft material that we, that we have for the novel. By the time he applied for the Guggenheim Fellowship in 68, the first one, he had 1,800 pages of superseded or usable draft pages. Wow. So, so that can tell you something about how often he reworked his material, how how much, how, how sheer amount of writing he does to create the novels that we end up reading. But he didn't include any excerpts in his Guggenheim application, so we don't have any further clues, except that he did tell one of those local reporters in the Knoxville area that that year, he told them that he was still in rough draft work on the novel. And that usually meant that he was still working toward his shape, of the, no- the final shape right. of the novel. He might have had lots of incidents, but he was still honing it. Um, the middle draft is pared down to 800 pages, and that's mostly from 1972. And that's the version um, in which McCarthy pulled out several seg- segments for Erskine to submit to periodicals. And so we know. Well, I don't need to go into that. Um, when we look at the at the middle draft, um, we can see what's there. But maybe it's interesting just for what he thought might stand alone. So he sent Harrogate and the Flitter <laughs> the the bat hunting scene, the grim early chapter in which he meets his friends in the huddle, and then um, has this horrible drunken night and wakes in jail after his dream of the flayed man, the chapter of the freezing Thanksgiving day when he checks on his friends and then ends up stranded at the end of the streetcar line, his excursion down river to visit his aunt and uncle and to see the old family house. And I think that family house, we probably need to put that next to his visits to his old church and to his old school as a sort of a, a pattern of incidents in the novel. And the final chapter of the book, when he uh, beginning when he falls ill, and then taking taking it all the way through to the end. But none of the periodical editors agreed that this could stand alone, which says something about how carefully interwoven the book is and all his yes. writing is. And after that, he and uh, he and Erskine really stopped even trying to get excerpts published because they felt that it just was not going to work for him.
0: The other day, Tuesday, was the introductory day of my American literature class for the semester, and then yesterday was the second period. I said, when you take surveys of literature class in college, they give you an incorrect, illusory idea about how the world of literature has progressed throughout the 20th century into the 21st, because it would make you think that the dominant mode of all in the 21st century is the short story. Mm -hmm. And although... Our greatest writers in the first half of the century were incredible short story writers. And that continued up through people like Flannery O'Connor in this 50s, 60s, through to Raymond Carver in the 70s and 80s. And then I guess you could add to that uh, the wonderful Canadian writer Alice Munro mm-hmm. in the 90s and 2000s. It's almost vanished as an American literary form. There are very few collections of stories on sale in most bookstores, for example. And McCarthy, after his foray in college, never published short fiction that was truly short fiction. Toni Morrison, to my knowledge, only published one short story that was really composed that way. And it shows how much that has gone away, which I think is to the detriment of fiction in general. Mm -hmm. And it's a little different maybe in... Science fiction and mystery writing, but mostly it's it's a vanished form, and so it is interesting to think: what if McCarthy had been making money writing these stories the way that Scott Fitzgerald supported himself writing short fiction, which paid far more than his novels did back in the in the twenties?
1: His creativity didn't seem to be um, bent in that direction. He, uh, that's a good he, point. He just seems to always think in terms terms of incidents that add up to something larger. And usually he had more, um, more of a challenge cutting down. <laughs> now he wrote, he wrote some very slender books, but um, certainly with this book, cutting down was a big challenge.
0: Right. You've written before and talked before about his relationship with uh, his his editor Erskine at Random House can you tell us what he made of, of sutry and the parts of it that came into him or
1: he probably had seen um, some draft material ahead of time but McCarthy finished a final draft in late 76 or early 77 and and sent it to him that was an 878 page typescript so wow. probably erskine <laughs> threw up his hands a little bit and was a little bit dismayed. And after he had read it, he sent McCarthy this long and really very um, frankly critical letter. Mm. He thought the book was too long, too diffuse. He thought the dialogue of some of the minor characters was flat and undistinctive, that he couldn't really tell the difference between some of those secondary characters. And he kind of lectured McCarthy by quoting Coleridge to him. Coleridge said, it's not possible to imitate truly a dull and garrulous discourser without repeating the effects of dullness and garrulity. (laughs) Garrulity? So those characters that Erskine thought were guilty of that tedious speech were Hoghead, Blind Richard, J.B. I can't find a J.B. anywhere in the novel.
0: You mean J Bone, do you think? Oh,
1: maybe uh, J Bone. Maybe. It's hard to think of him as being a dull speaker, but.
0: No, definitely
1: (laughs) not. um, And then Primrose, who's a character that we don't have any anymore in the novel. Right. And Erskine said, not only were they in, indistinguishable, but he thought they were kind of boring. Mm. He also tired of having so many scenes focused on Harrogate, but in general, he approved of McCarthy's depictions of Gene, Michael, Ab. Daddy Watson, Harvey the Junk Man, Hooper the Rag Man, and more reluctantly, he conceded some appreciation for the Goat Man and for Weird Leonard. But then he said these good elements, are, he thought, are asked to tote an awful lot of extraneous baggage. So he actually nominated some episodes for pruning or elimination, the scene in which Suttry lies drunk in his car while his friends build a fire in the, s- in the floor. The Liberation of Primrose, um, which is really um, a continuation. The drunk friends go and try to get Primrose liberated from the insane insane asylum where he's he's been for several years. The fight at the Indian Rock Roadhouse when Sutri is concussed by the floor buffer and the subsequent hospital scene. Um, He also nominated Reese and Sutri's trip to the whorehouse. Which he thought was a really nowhere juvenile excursion that deserves to that serves to expand that muscle brailing expedition that he thought was still far too long. So still far too long. He had told McCarthy this before, but and then he said, "I know by now that for reasons of your own, you're determined to keep the whore keeping sutry bit and the muscle gathering bit, but I'd like to repeat that I believe." They not only do not pull their weight, but might even sink the boat, a boat that disturbs that, that deserves to float. Mm. And then finally, he seemed to have been most distressed by Sutri's anti-heroic traits, which are very evident in the novel. Sure. His alcoholism, his troubled relationships with women, his sometimes immature behaviors. And this memo went on for four pages. And before he before Erskine finished it, he took time out to watch Hamlet on television. <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> he thought, okay, I will compare this to Shakespeare. And he thought that compared to Hamlet, Hamlet was tragic, but Sutri was merely pitiful. Hamlet was heroic, but Sutri was juvenile. Hamlet, Hamlet acted on high principle and with integrity, but Sutri was prone to betray his own values. And then he acknowledged that his confusion about Sutri was related to his confusion about the author's attitude toward his character, which I think is probably a legitimate criticism to make, although I don't agree with it. He said, I don't know how you add him all together and what in total he is to you. And then he added... One reason among many why I hated The Ginger Man, that's by Dunleavy, right. was my awareness that the author thought that the shit he was portraying, most likely himself, was just great.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty harsh, but right. uh, it seems like maybe he was uh, wanted McCarthy to recognize that people might assume that this was autobiographical and that he maybe needed to do a little more to give his readers some guidance. So then over the next nine months, McCarthy went through another round of revisions. He, he really took it seriously, but he didn't really significantly um, shorten the typescript. He did take out five episodes. They were fairly self-contained, so they were things that were pretty easy for him to pull out. And he rewrote others with an eye to reducing their length. For instance, for those who that he rewrote, um, he eliminated uh, a whole sequence in which Wanda becomes pregnant and they're, oh. having, they're having to deal with that. To me, it's a pretty significant deletion because when she dies, he not only loses her, he loses another child. Right. So it emphasizes his grief and loss, his loss of family once more. But four of those episodes that he took out feature transgressive behaviors of the minor characters, which Hmm. makes them very similar to the rest of the novel. And those scenes, as Erskine noticed, they don't overtly present the crimes committed, which are things like theft, cockfighting, whiskey running, and whoring as morally questionable. uh, Suntry is aware of the the transgressor's victims, but his judgment of the perpetrators is held in abeyance, and they seem to be subsumed within his project to comprehend the outsider. Those episodes also um, show his preferred techniques of addressing the ethical dimension subtly through imagery, through Suntry's gestures, including silence, and through the choices he makes, sometimes pretty long after he's witnessing the transgressions. So he chose to delete some of that morally ambiguous material rather than to have Suttry draw explicit judgments about his characters. And that, that starts way back in his earlier novels, and particularly in Outer Dark, where he worked and worked and worked to keep that novel as objective yes. as, as he could. And then, also common to those episodes that he deleted are the oral storytelling efforts of the minor characters and of Sutri himself. Four of them reflect his engagement with the Sut Love and Good Yarns, um, another Knoxville writer of the 19th century. And those passages, interestingly, they place Sutri in the role comparable to Harris's framing narrator, auditor, the literate. George or to his skilled folk narrator, Sut Loving Good, who is the Mm. better, the better storyteller. Right. Yes. And those episodes amplified when they were still there, they really amplified the evidence that an emotionally and spiritually healthier Sutri is implied to be its retrospective third-person narrator. There are actually scenes in which you see him working out stories. Or listening, for instance, to Leonard tell his story and kind of rewriting it even as he's listening oh, that's to interesting. it. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to see him do it. Or including um, a story of Tip Mize, one of the one of the whiskey runners, that starts out in in high loving good style. It's yeah. really fun. It's great to listen to, and then the story just kind of peters out. <laughs> um, he forgets where he started. He forgets some of the details he, he started with earlier. And it's just sort of anticlimactic when it ends. So, of course, it doesn't work as a story. But the point is that Sutry is hearing these stories that don't work. Yes. And he's learning how to make stories work better.
0: That's all very interesting. The first Part of what you spoke about with Erskine, not liking the book and wanting to argue with him a bit. Part of that is it makes you think of Tom Wolfe and Maxwell Perkins. Mm -hmm. And Perkins, of course, had to take these crates of manuscript from Wolfe and whittle them down into publishable form. And one of your professors from South Carolina famously published the unedited version of... I guess it was You Can't Go Home Again was the one he...
1: Wasn't it Look Homeward, Angel?
0: It was Look Homeward, Angel. He published the unedited version, and he and I very much disagree. I think the Perkins edited version is a stronger novel, <laughs> and no one ever should have told Tom Wolf, keep on writing. <laughs> they should have said, build to a stop so we can make it multi-volume or something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas with McCarthy, of course, the, from the very beginning, he knows it's a picaresque approach because he's writing scenes and building scenes and I can see where they're looking almost at two different projects in a way and trying to meet in the middle whereas Erskine wants a very solid structure and it's a b c d whereas McCarthy's thinking of more like ingredients that go into Jambalaya you add a little this Mm -hmm. a little that a little more of this and that and you can trade some things out so it's it's very fascinating to hear about all of that of course when we think of the novel we not only think of Sutri's degradation. And, and I suspect that for readers today who can't get into the novel due to anything of characterization or plot, it still comes down to the same problems that Erskine had in the, the 60s of the way such reacts off, you know, put some people off. But the reason I think I and other people think of it as such a, a masterpiece is not only because of the philosophical quandaries and the story of these down and outs in Knoxville, it's also simply the beauty of the language. Mm-hmm. I think his poetic style is more on display here than in any other book. And in, and I would include Blood Meridian mm-hmm. where, where that's concerned. Could you maybe, if you have it handy, and if you don't, I do, read for us the, that first paragraph of the prologue?
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because he's not making it easy for his ri- write, uh, readers from the no, beginning with with that prologue, um, even though he's inviting them in because he's address- addressing them right away as dear friend. Yes. Dear friend, now in the dusty clockless hours of the town, when the streets lie black and steaming in the wake of the water trucks, and now when the drunk and the homeless have washed up in the lee of walls in alleys or abandoned lots, and cats go forth high-shouldered and lean in the grim perimeters about. Now in these soot blacked brick or cobbled corridors where light-wire shadows make a gothic harp of cellar doors, no soul shall walk save you.
0: Yeah, it's it's perfect to me.
1: (laughs) It's like Faulkner, that when you read it out out loud, the, the rhythm of it, the music of it, Uh, just takes over. It is wonderful in its cadence, wonderful in its imagery, beautiful, beautiful writing.
0: Yep. And there's a lot going on here to set us up in the novel, Uh, as much as people think of it because it's in italics, I guess, and there's no character or or plot yet. They think it's just an add-on to expose you, but it's very reminiscent of the two-page prologue that begins Hemingway's novel, A Farewell to Arms. There's about two paragraphs in that two-page prologue of Farewell to Arms that tell you everything that's going to happen in the book. And you've written before on how a lot of that's going on here as well.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, he's introducing all of the um, image patterns that are going to recur over and over again throughout the book. And of course, those image patterns carry the themes of the book. So if you read it carefully, and probably you can't be aware of this until you've already read the whole novel once. But if you go back and see it, even if you're introducing a new reader to the book and you say something like, pay attention to those images in the, in the prologue because they're going to show up again yes, in the novel. It introduces the city. You have the, the voice, the narrator walking through the city, past the cemetery, down to the river, ending up on the bridge. And that's returned to pretty precisely on page 29 at the end of Sutri's first day in the Mm. novel proper. So, there's something there that's that's sort of identifying the narrator of the prologue with Sutri himself. It introduces the narrator's deep awareness of the city, what McCarthy talked about in his application. The issues of mortality, of ruin, of poverty predation, mm. deep time and history, all of those things that are really Satri's obsessions throughout yeah. the novel. And finally, um, at the end, uh, when Satri, the narrator, is standing on the bridge, you see that he's kind of presenting the novel as a stage play when the curtain rises on the Western world. And he's almost addressing the reader as an audience And of course, we're sitting in that audience where the curtain is unscrolling dust and bones and and the (laughs) interlocutor is coated in dust and we're all skeletal, we're all dead. But it's a way of awakening the audience of making us that totally aware person.
0: This novel requires a lot and it is one of those books that you really only truly start getting when you reread it, like like you say, it is like Sound and the Fury or uh, Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner, Ulysses by James Joyce, and we could probably name it, or Moby Dick by Melville. These are books that it's really your second and third time through that you start really reaping all the mm-hmm. rewards that are offered in the book. But certainly the first time through, you pick up just on the language as well as the hilarious situations and for lack of a better term, shenanigans. I once described the book to someone. It is a story told by Stephen Dedalus about the people from Cannery Row in the wasteland.
1: <laughs> I think that's fairly accurate.
0: <laughs> and I don't know I see any real references to Cannery Row here, but of course there's a whole lot of references to the wasteland and to, there's a bit of Joyce in mm-hmm. here as well, maybe we can talk about in a bit. So could you... Perhaps give us just a little bit of overview of a almost plotless novel, more than we have, maybe. Um, I guess. So we know that the setting is Knoxville 1950, and it's set mostly in the kind of slummy neighborhoods of Mackinale Flats. But if you went to Knoxville today, you couldn't find Macinally flats anymore, could you? Well,
1: probably the the neighborhood designation is still there. One of the one of the confusions, and I probably contributed to it in my early writing. Because, uh, because Sutry says that he has seen another McAnally good to last a thousand years, readers are prone to look at all of the settings and the riverfront setting as part of McAnally. But in fact, the riverfront where the blacks live along the railroad tracks and the riverfront is its own neighborhood. And McAnally yes. is actually west of Knoxville's marketplace and city center. It's more up yes. in the university area, not right at the university, but it's it's up that hill. So that's where James Agee lived. It's where the Long family lived. McCarthy's friend that he met in, in Ibiza, Les- Leslie Garrett, when he moved to Knoxville, he found a place in that neighborhood. So it's a, it's a lower middle-class neighborhood, maybe blue-collar
0: But rearranged and gentrified and parts of it kind of scooped out through urban planning. And he talks about that toward the end of the book.
1: Right.
2: When I'm on the boat, I don't much care for town. Water and me, we don't need no one around. Can a river be your friend? Maybe not, but I'll say it again. Learn how to treat her, she might not let you down I've been told, deserve me a better life Whores and bawds won't do ye without a wife Well, marry up the few for me If I'm going to jail, I'll do it free I'm
0: not paying out double every time I want to roll the dice and so our setting year is 1950. Uh, and, and it's interesting because although it certainly feels like 1950 when we think of the automobiles and the ch- chain gangs and things like that, the, there are a few things that are kind of missing in the book a little bit. And one of those would be this is only five years after World War II. Think of how much the 1949 setting of All the Pretty Horses, the war is still lingering on. And here, there's very little thought about that. And I guess it's just simply different interests.
1: Just the the maimed and the amputees in the marketplace. You know, you do get right. the feeling that some of these men who are living in this abject poverty might be returned soldiers. It's very subtle, like McCarthy always is. That's, that's a but good point. I, yeah. Um, they're not all maimed just because of growing up in Tennessee. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, think, I think it is reflected somewhat in those poor people, even blind Richard. We don't know how he was blinded, but now he's older and it seems like maybe his eyes are cataracted. But you have, you have right. people who seem to be injured in, in really horrendous ways that might be victims of World War II. Hmm. I also think it's interesting that McCarthy himself in 1950, which is probably the date of that flashback to the Jordonia workhouse scenes, he would have been maybe a sophomore in high school. He graduated in 52. And this one, the main part of the story runs from 51 to 54. So just to set some more biographical context, He's looking back at Knoxville as it was when he was in his last 2 years in high school and maybe his first 2 years at the university.
0: Uh-huh. And which which may have been some of his knock around years with yes. his friends who were down in those yeah. areas and although I've never examined his transcript and have no idea what kind of student he was, we do know he left and went to the Air mm-hmm. Force.
1: And he's, he says he was invited to leave. So so he may not have done all that well in his first couple of years.
0: <laughs> and, and those of us who work in colleges know very well the conversation you give to certain mm-hmm. students about have you considered doing something else for a while until you're ready to come back and mm-hmm. take your studies seriously. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the book as all these series of scenes and as a picaresque novel in some ways. And for those who don't study Uh, Books for a Living Picaresque comes back from the Picaro stories of of Spanish literature and it kind of reaches its apotheosis and Don Quixote and it means a whole lot of little scenes of a novel and it usually implies there's not a lot of structure it's just a lot of scenes building upon scenes but I know that you and many others have argued there is more structure to Sutri, then people give it credit for it. Maybe he didn't start with a solid structure in mind, but he definitely, through the revision and editing process, has created a, a structure. Could you describe it uh, how you see it? Yeah, and I
1: can say probably there are multiple structuring principles working in it, which may be why people don't see it as a straightforward mm-hmm. plot um, the, the way that many novels have. But one of the things is established in the imagery of those insects that aspire, the moths that aspire toward the, the lamplights, um, the, uh, the circling, the spiraling, the whirling. It's repeated in things like the dog whelk's shell, the whirling red reverend, the thumb whorl of death, the galactic drain suck, which is probably yeah. <laughs> one of the most important images in, in the novel. And all of those Yeatsian gyring images; those are mirrored, I think, on a on a larger narrative uh, level in the recursive patterns of the novel. Everything that comes up—this um, is probably a little exaggeration—but most of the incidents are echoed mirrored repeated yes he keeps cycling cycling back through it's as if we're caught in the coiling maelstrom of of this purgatorial life and Mm. i think back to outer dark where kala is just circling 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 and never breaking out yes of his fate and you have that with the characters too. The secondary characters are this revolving carousel of crazies. That's a quote a quote <laughs> from the novel. Um, and so you do you cycle through all these characters and one person will be introduced and ten, page la- ten pages later, that person will show up again. And the fates of those characters, for the most part, are are worked out. You you have them resolved as you go through the novel. And he said in his application for funding that Knoxville itself was the center, sort of the centering principle of the novel. And I think that's pretty obvious to see. But you also have counterpointing that Sutri's periodic escapes or Or excursions out of Knoxville and then getting pulled back in until the final one where he does seem to leave Knoxville, leave the the purgatorial. So, one of the things that that suggests is that whenever Sutri leaves Knoxville, he's no better off. He's carrying his terrible obsessions and his depression with him. So, basically, all places are Knoxville. All places mm. are this depressed, imprisoning within a view of life that is very, very unforgiving. And then you can see that the novel um, begins with the dead in the prologue, like we talked about, and um, the suicide in the first chapter proper, and it ends with the corpse in suttry 's houseboat at the end and his rebirth as he leaves the city and is offered water from the Aquarian water boy and is offered a ride out of the city and he's fleeing from the hounds he's getting away from them he's escaping them.
0: right fly Fly them them. yes you know it's interesting every Every novel published by McCarthy, with the exception of The Orchard Keeper and this one, is primarily about motion and mm-hmm. movement and leaving mm-hmm. and going. And that one, of course, The Orchard Keeper ends if John Wesley has gone away and has come back and is leaving again. And this one ends with Sutri leaving as mm-hmm. well. And especially with the, some of the other things you talk about with this, it it is interesting. As far back as The Odyssey, physical motion and physical journeying has reflected uh, interior change and evolution. And it seems like for much of the novel, one of his biggest problems is he can't change Mm -hmm. and can't Mm -hmm. evolve. And I guess we can look at whether at the end we should see that as a, a step forward in his progression or, or not. So, uh, I do think it's really fascinating to call that as well.
1: I do too. And rereading it this time, I was struck by how many times from the beginning of the novel, the word lonely or loneliness comes up. Ah. He He is so alienated. He is so ashamed. He is so depressed. And he escapes into drink, and he escapes into inappropriate sexual relationships. And yeah, he's pretty stuck until the end of yeah. the novel. And I think, too, that maybe those kinds of things, are they are symptoms, but they're also suggestions that those things can cripple your artistic creativity, That that these are the challenges a writer needs to overcome. And he needs to step out of his own death-hauntedness, his own uh, fears, his own life-denying attitudes and come to some sort of accommodation with the world in order to be able to write about the world.
0: It would be very interesting, given what we know of McCarthy's life, to kind of see where some of those notions appear in the drafting process I, we know that he said in interviews that one of the main things that stops writers and impedes writers is drinking mm-hmm. too much carousing too much uh, is implied with that as well. And we know that at some point at that point in his life, McCarthy had to scale way back and and credits, that's one of the reasons why he's able to move forward with his life is, mm-hmm. is stopping the kind of drinking he had done as a mm-hmm. younger man. I don't, I don't think he necessarily forever stopped drinking altogether, but perhaps so. It's one of those things we don't necessarily know about, I guess, so much, but certainly the kind of self-destructive, lose yourself in sheer chaos and drunkenness and foolishness that you see many young people in impoverished circumstances playing out over and over and over again, despite all the evidence that inevitably it leads to at the very best, disappointment, and at the worst, of course, death and mm-hmm. desolation.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we know that he warned Leslie Garrett. When he left Ibiza um, in 67, he warned Garrett, who did become really such an alcoholic that it almost cost him his life. Um, he warned him to stop drinking. He he knew it that early that mm. that was a real danger. And he has said in other letters and interviews that drinking and adulation are two very wow. strong threats to a writer's career.
0: Well, and he had he had some great examples to draw yes. on, right? Between Faulkner and Hemingway, uh, John Steinbeck, uh, Fitzgerald. Scott Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. every every one of them destroyed by that. Faulkner, not so much the adulation until the very end, and you can't blame the guy for wanting a little bit of enjoyment his last 12 years or so after all that that long apprenticeship and all the ways that he had to wait to find an audience, really. But certainly Hemingway, uh, and that's another book written by Bruckley, and there's a great book by Robert Trogdon called Hemingway and I think the mechanism of Mm -hmm. fame and just how it it destroyed him in many ways and, and interrupted what could have been a very different career. He
1: got so involved living out some kind of a role Um, And he became, I think what McCarthy was worried about was becoming so self-conscious about what he was doing that he wouldn't be able to, since his work came out of his subconscious, he needed to have that absolute freedom from self-consciousness in order to get into the flow and to do the creative work, and as soon as you start looking at yourself and paying attention to yourself, you're really in your own way.
0: And thinking about how others are going to receive this, and whether they'll that's criticize right. it or they'll like that's it. That's right. And it it's probably worthy of notice. There's a lot of other things going on, but he really, with the film reception of No Country for Old Men, that's when he really becomes kind of a household name. People were paying attention to him. The book goes back to being from a kind of minor bestseller to a huge bestseller. And he hasn't published anything other than he sold screenplay for the Mm -hmm. counselor since, since that film. And who knows if this is part of what's going on or in his way, or if it's simply age, or if he just is one of those 18 year gestation things with the passenger where he's working on a few books all at once or not I don't suspect we will know until a few years down the line at this point yeah. but who knows
1: I'd like to think that he's been working on the passenger pretty steadily since then but um
0: I'd like to think he's got the passenger plus two other novels <laughs> and they're all ready to come out anytime now but That
1: would be great.
0: <laughs> although it seems like Both No Country for Old Men which he rewrote from a very different screenplay and The Road came along well after he'd started on The Passenger yeah. as a kind of moving in another direction much like Child of God came well after he'd been working on Sutri for a long time and was a, a swerve for a while into a different. Yeah, project. and
1: grew straight out of Outer Dark. So I, th- I think he's always been really open to the new ideas that might come up. And so you've got him working on Sutri. And if what he says about its coming about, uh, his idea for it coming about in 61 or 62, that's pretty close to the time that he starts thinking about Outer Dark. And then yeah as he's doing the second draft of Outer Dark, he's in Europe, it's 1966. And he says, I can take all this auction material and create this other story. And that's Hmm. the start of Child of God. So those two kind of grew out of each other. I don't know that any other of his works have quite had that intimate relationship with each other. Um, maybe the two drug novels, you know, no, I mean, the, the two works that deal with the, the drug trade, uh, The Counselor and No Country for Old Men.
0: Right. When we think of these recurring patterns and, and paradigms, these things that show up again, one of the things when you read this novel, you you think of the famous line from Joyce about Ireland is, it's a priest-haunted land. And of course, Flannery O'Connor adopts that and says the South is Christ-haunted this novel to me is death haunted. To me, too. We see, we see death everywhere in it. Yeah. Don't we?
1: And I think it's because Sutri is death haunted. You know, I was thinking about this, this thing that he said about a, a narrator or a character who is totally aware. One of Sutri's problems is that he's highly intelligent and he is never able to forget death. Most, most hmm. of us go through life putting death in the background we know it's there we all hate the idea but we don't think about it every single day but as satri goes through his life there is not a day when something doesn't happen that again touches that sensitive point he is he's totally aware and totally sensitive and totally aware of death at all Mm. times maybe until the end
0: and as you pointed out we we start with death and suicide being discussed in the very beginning of the book and then we end with it being found in the the, the body in his his mm-hmm. own bed there toward the end it is it is interesting to think that in literary history so often the use of the river is always about baptism we see it in the adventures huckleberry finn and he literally attends a baptism in this where the gentleman up on the shore inform him well unless it's total nursing <laughs> that's Franklin on the hedge you got it's not going to do you any good buddy um, you need to go on down there and then of course he finds that one of them sympathetic and likes to have a pull on the white lightning or whatever they have in the jug yet with all that stated the river in this novel seems to not represent the things rivers so often um. represent they're not it's not about going from one place to another it's not about baptism and rebirth uh, it, it's a little more the river Styx, it river is. letha as you think of those two the river forgetfulness and death that bracket hades in greek mythology
1: it's also mortality and ruin yeah all of the images you know the cloacal waste the 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 filth the sewage the mire the condoms the you know all of the the fluidity of the human body and the disgust at those kinds of things, which really comes back to Satri's disgust at the frailty of human flesh and uh, and at the ultimate death. And so, you have the idea of the river washing people's lives out to sea and all the detritus of the past floating, floating mm-hmm. through the river. And that's another pattern in the book, too, that there are always these images, and usually it's kind of a film strip image. Um, right. people's faces being framed in a window, whether it's a streetcar or a house window. And if if someone is moving, like Sutri often is, they're pulled out of your frame of reference. And and that's hmm. very similar to what happens when he turns the pages of the photo album and looks at all of his dead yes. kin. So his sense that humans are here for an eye blink and they're constantly being yanked out of, out of the present into the past with very little left to remind people that they even existed
2: I won't go looking but it just might track me down I can't stand standing still Maybe if I go and get my fill, them good old boys I have the courtesy to kick me around.
0: What I know. So, if I were to say to a very well person on the street, I've read a novel about a young man walking around a city all the time, speculating on life and death, the nature of the world there's very subtle clues that he's meant to be something beyond just this guy and will eventually become a writer and that we're reading a kind of, and I hate to get all English professory <laughs> for the listeners, but it's called a, a Kunstler Roman, you know, a, a book about the, the birth of an artist and that in his walking and imagining, he's trying to work out the meaning of life and how the world should work. That person might not say "Sutry" to me. They might say Ulysses, mm-hmm by James Joyce. Mm-hmm. There is, there's definitely uh, hints of Stephen Dedalus, whose very name is, of course, about flight and trying to make your way through a maze and all that. There's definitely hints of Stephen Dedalus the younger secondary character of Ulysses, and certainly hints of joyce style and writing throughout the book. Do you think it's there in more than just paying tribute to it, or do you think it's simply an influence on... On him, I know that Joyce isn't something you've really focused on in your work as such, but
1: well, and I'm a little bit away from Joyce, but I do I do rem- remember enough about it to to think that yes, Sutry sort of fits within that genre. I don't think that McCarthy set out to imitate Joyce, but I think yeah. it was a model for maybe for his structure uh, or aspects of his structure that. And he's not doing anything artificial, like patterning it against uh, an earlier novel like Ulysses or uh, yes, yes. so i I think it I think it works. I also think the close mapping of the city shows up in something like Crime and Punishment, mm. where you have another character a very alienated, confused, disaffected right. character. Walking the streets of the city, observing its ills. So I think that's a hmm. I think that's a very profound model too. Raskolnikov comes to some sort of resolution at the end, some sort of sense of atonement at the end as well. When he leaves St. Petersburg, he has to do it by going, you know, to Siberia and sort of um, literally paying atonement. But yes. Um, so I think there are multiple models there. And I would also say that the narrative structure the, with the, the older version of the main character narrating himself as a younger person would take us to Moby Dick, where you have Ishmael yeah. telling the story of this whole microcosm in the whaling ship. Um, he's a character there, but it's a, it's a retrospective narrator. Um, and he sees himself as kind of a ridiculous um, person in the, in the opening, but he's a very, a very serious retrospective narrator when he looks at what right. the events of the novel mean.
0: And I think if someone stretches a little too hard to connect this to Ulysses or Portrait of the Artist, one of the places where that overdoing it falls apart is it, what's interesting, Ulysses, you have a very different person who becomes an older mentor of a sort
2: to mm-hmm. deathless
0: with in Leopold Bloom. And you don't really have that guy in this book. You have people who he can look up to who are older, such as Ab Jones, but Ab Jones is not able to break out of his own yeah. cycle. And, and although we may see something heroic in it with him because of his taking on, basically it's a fight for equality and he he's significant as a, again, a, a black man in 1952 who, refuses to accept the inequities and inequality of the city that he's in. Although there's something heroic about it, it's also futile. Yeah. It's tilting at windmills until, he, until the windmill that's kills right. him.
1: That's right. He does tell Satri to look after his own heart and look after his own people. Hmm. And I think that's maybe a step, a little piece of advice that helps but Sutri can't he's not ready to absorb that. He's he's not yeah. ready to do that. And Michael tells him with the amulet, don't just put it away and forget about it. You have to you have to keep it in your consciousness, which I read is mm. sort of a, a piece of advice saying you have to believe in your luck. You have to believe that grace will come to you. That
0: have some kind of faith.
1: Yes. Don't don't live only in your darkest fears believe in in something positive
0: so thinking about that then we have erskine complaining your character is pitiful he doesn't grow why should we like him the way we do hamlet you you could argue that none of Sutri's lost loves commit suicide (laughs) but it's also very obvious that it's very horrible to be involved with Sutri, just it is to be involved with hamlet and so, in that case, do you see growth in the character? We talked about this a little bit before. Is there progress towards accepting how horrible the world is, all the all the death about him? Does he change or heal or become better um, over the course of the novel?
1: There are hints all along that um, Sutri does see and is aware of the beauty of the world that is compensation for its terror. And of course, I'm quoting from All the Pretty Horses now, that that mm. both both of those are there. And of course, it's all about loss. And John Grady recognizes this, and he says he, he loves the world still. And so I do mm. think that Satri moves in that direction. He has to shed an old self to do it. I don't think he's exactly as pitiful as Erskine said, partly because Sutri is aware of all the people that the the respectable class of Knoxville has decided not to see. Yes. And they are so pitiful, these secondary characters, the old man who lives under the bridge, the ridiculous Gene Harrogate who... Doesn't know, doesn't know how to be pessimistic. <laughs> um,
0: I thought you said I couldn't blow it up.
1: <laughs> so all the way through the novel, I think we admire Suttry's awareness we ad- when he's aware and not lying drunk in oblivion. And I think we admire his reaching out to the, to the poor of the city and yes. being aware of their pain. But of course, that adds to his pain. Because he thinks that what God would have invented such a mocky, worm-bent tabernacle as this, as this flesh of ours, he just sees people representing humanity in such dire and pitiful ways. Right. So it's there; it's in him. The com- compassion is in him. What he needs to do is to. Accept maybe his own mortality and that this is the way the world is, and go on anyway, which is a very existential, existentialist sort of accommodation to make. Yes, but I do see him coming to that at the end through the imagery of the epilogue,
0: very much so. And even that final fever dream where he says, We were never promised our flesh. Uh, You know, where where he accepts the fact that even through the the doctrines of established faith, whether it's uh, Protestant Christianity, uh, Roman Catholicism, Islam, Buddhism, no one says that the physical body will live forever. That's right. It's a given that it's it's built with an expiration date, and sooner or later, things will happen to it Mm -hmm. and will shuffle off the mortal Mm -hmm. coil. And you have that great scene with, uh, I believe it's when the rag picker has died. He says, You have no right to your wretchedness. Mm -hmm. You have
1: no right to represent. Humanity this way.
0: Yes. Yeah. Meaning hold on a That's little right. more. He's, he's right.
1: angry at the death. He's angry at mm-hmm. death. And yet he, he comes to recognize that, you know, this is, this is, this is what the cost of life is. It's the price we pay.
0: My paperback edition is pretty long the the 1992 paperback has 471 pages the font is not real big like when you buy some of these thick paperbacks and then you realize it's nine words to a page so it's a, it's a lengthy book and obviously we haven't covered much of what's in here as you've talked about the various levels of structure and the this the cycles and all this so there's a whole lot going on so what other themes should we probably just go over in in real brief recitation of, of what else we should pay attention to.
1: We just touched on this, this whole uh, issue of the pitiable condition of the impoverished, the outlawed, the racial other. All of the characters right. in the book, except for Seturi, are are living in pretty dire circumstances. And the mm. book is holding our nose to that and saying, this is what life is for many many people in America in certainly in Knoxville but Knoxville is a microcosm. So that social awareness that awareness of economical and economic and racial discrepancies is very much a part of the book. I think that Sutry's vertiginous awareness of human evolution it's history of cruelty, predation, greed, the ever-accumulating detritus of the, of the past. That's a very strong pattern that runs through the book. And you, you have these alternating scenes of the poor of the city and the commerce of the marketplace. Right. So, you know, it's all connected there. And he seems to be suggesting that this is, this is what human history has been these, these yes. discrepancies between those who have and those who who don't I think you've got all of these prisons running through the novel the 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 jails the workhouse the insane right. asylum even the hospitals these institutions where people are trapped and that suddenly becomes um, a metaphor for the whole of life in Knoxville but that life uh-huh. itself is an imprisonment within the human body which is mortal this is a very gnostic idea by the way the ancient gnostics <laughs> just couldn't get couldn't get over this sense of certainly god wouldn't have done this our god must right. be totally outside of this horrible cosmos Certainly the alienation from family and loss of right. family, that terrible loneliness, and the maybe compensatory search for a brotherhood of mankind reaching out to all of humankind. Awareness and vision versus oblivion. And this is where the alcoholism, the drunkenness, um, all, of, all of that kind of thing comes in. And Bill Spencer once wrote a good article about Sutri's vision quests, that he has all of these dreams, hallucinations, visions in, right. in the mountains. And sometimes these are healing. Sometimes they're just rehearsals of his, of his obsessions, but sometimes hmm. not. Then you have constant awareness of false or oppressive or self-absorbed religious figures. That religion in this novel doesn't seem to actually do anything for for the people who yeah. reach out for it, and certainly not for Satri. But then you have the search for a true spirit and communion, and you see that coming up in scenes with Michael with the sharing of the turtle stew, and right. with the the goat man who does this kind yeah. of um, simple preaching to people who show up and who and who cares right. for his goats, who's who's a a caring figure. Certainly you have the the theme of creative versus versus destructive versions of love or pursuits of love. And Satri in this is mostly on the destructive side. Things seem to get worse and worse for him. He had a wife that apparently he loved at one time. He abandoned her. Then he falls in love with Wanda and she's ripped away from him. And finally he makes this, really humiliating relationship with Joyce. So we don't see him, we don't see him healing his relationships to women in this book, but we have hope for him.
0: (laughs) Something I thought of earlier, and this is a reoccurring genre and every new generation kind of has the story of the young person kind of being a wastrel and the down and outs. Remember there was a very lot of books in the early eighties, bright lights, big Mm -hmm. city and lesson zero about really, really kind of rich kids mm-hmm. in those cases, but very, very much not people coming from Sutri's background or or maybe more from his background, but not in the world he immerses himself in. So it's kind of a, a genre you see written about uh, every every new generation. What's interesting here is that McCarthy never takes it easy on no. Sutri. Erskine's clearly telling him make him look better so that people will be more sympathetic to him. And he doesn't. He makes him having abandoned his child. And although we've talked about there may be some autobiographical resonances there that McCarthy is picking up on, in the way that every writer uses autobiographical resonances to give—I really slurred that word, but we'll let it stand—to um, give depth and and impact and and just heft to the scenes they write. Very clearly, he could have. Made that situation a little different. The child could have died in the past, and that's why he leaves. He could have made her family run him off or things, but he refuses to do that. He he has him really be the problem in many Mm -hmm. cases, and and it does tend to focus you not on just rooting for him, but rather searching through him, seeking him out. Why is he this way? What is he supposed to Mm do? It does again add to this kind of idea that the spiritual cycle the what is he where is he going that's and all that? Right. So I think that's one of the things that's good here.
1: As you read the book, you see his fine qualities, but you also wish so much for him to change um mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a driving mechanism of of the plot too. He's a character that you care about I care about. um you can care about him and yet you know that he needs to have a more life affirming philosophy. he needs to find his spiritual way. He needs to find his artistic way. And you want that for him.
0: Right. And so when the novel comes out, we know that his earlier books have had tremendous critical success and almost no sales as such. Is this one any different than the first three? No,
1: um, it was really a terrible disappointment. To McCarthy because he had high hopes for it, and again, Random House published about five thousand copies. I think I might have said in my earlier podcast that they that they usually published five hundred copies, but that was a that was uh, I misspoke. It's five thousand copies, right? And out of that, um, only twenty seven hundred sold. Amazing, and I have one of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and and then it was out of print until nineteen eighty six. And it wasn't reviewed any more widely than any of his other books, but there were, I'll just tell you about a couple of kind of interesting reviews. The reviewer for the Memphis Commercial Appeal was really offended by the book. And partly you can tell that he was offended by the presentation of Knoxville. He thought that McCarthy Mm. had really done a hatchet job on another Tennessee city and that this was just. Totally objectionable, and he he called it a masterpiece of filth. <laughs> and um, when the review was published, it had a it had the picture that's on the book jacket of McCarthy. And McCarthy quipped to one of his correspondents, "They even ran a picture of the master so that he could be recognized on the streets." <laughs> <laughs> And he was so offended by it that he even sort of over-exaggerated over the graphic sexuality of the novel. I mean, there are some sexual scenes, but it doesn't strike me as, even when it came out, I mean, our standards have changed, but even then it didn't strike me as overly graphic. No. But that was interesting because that prompted a very passionate rejoinder from Shelby Foote, who also wrote for the Memphis Appeal, lived in Memphis. And Foote had really been one of those champions, one of those Random House authors. Yes. Yes. And he pointed out that this was, yes, admittedly, it was a novel about the, the poorest stratum of Knoxville. But he pointed out that it was a highly poetic Treatment and you yeah. know basically made the case for McCarthy as being one of our best American writers, and then two other people who had reviewed McCarthy before, um, Guy Davenport, who was a writer and uh, worked in uh, worked at the University of Kentucky, and McCarthy had met him through a friend. One of the things that he said that I thought was particularly important was that the structure of Sutri, far from being diffuse, was as tight as the strings on a guitar. Hmm. And I love that. I think that's, that's really yeah. true of the novel, but you have to maybe read it multiple times to, to see it. Right. And then Robert Coles, um, who had been right along reviewing McCarthy, he didn't, re- he didn't review The Orchard Keeper, but after that he started reviewing him regularly, and he may have known of some of the criticisms that Erskine had leveled and and certainly uh, he knew of the Jay-Z Howard review because McCarthy told him. He reads the novel's depiction of Knoxville as a microcosm of a mighty but seriously troubled troubled empire. So he sees it as social criticism not just of the city of Knoxville, but of America. Oh. And I, I think broadening it out that way is a is a useful way of looking at it. And he reads Sutri as an alien messenger or Christ figure who comes to make to oh, wow. make his way through an Armageddon in which narcissism is Satan. So wow. that's very Robert Coles. I mean that's that's very typical yeah. of his way of looking at things. But the idea of the alien me- messenger is also picking up on the Gnostic aura of the novel. Sure. The the idea that the savior comes from outside the world because the world itself is just so corrupt but there is a message mm. to be delivered from outside this closed circle of the the filth and the mire
0: it's great to know that there are people who were getting it and that must have been given that mccarthy didn't really make any money on the book that at least he had the respect of the people you most want to respect that you know who cares what this guy that no one's heard of from memphis thinks when Shelby Foote and Guy Davenport, Robert Coles, are giving you that kind of response Mm -hmm. to it. So since I've asked you before, what's your first favorite (laughs) book and what's your second favorite book, which is how we usually wind things down here on the podcast. This time, why don't we stay focused on Sutri? Where does this novel list in your personal ordering of McCarthy's works?
1: Right at the top.
0: Right at the top, number one, top two or three.
1: Well, I can always name two or three or four or five, but yeah, it's, it's right up there. It's right up there. Yeah. Um, like you, when I reread it, I'm just totally absorbed in it again, totally in awe of what McCarthy has, has done in this book. There's not, well, I will say this, when he pulled out those episodes for Erskine, he did introduce some minor discrepancies mm. in the plot. But they are so unnoticeable because everything is so
0: interconnected. Right.
1: So I just think it's, it's really marvelous. I think it is his masterwork. And I think it must have been devastating to him to see it fall on deaf ears.
0: I guess that's where history can give you a little bit of perspective to think of Moby Dick coming out and making, this is a bad pun, but I'm going with it. A very minor splash in the United States, a slightly bigger <laughs> yes. one in Great Britain and not really being discovered till the 1920s for what he had done. And you see that bitterness in Bartleby the Scrivener mm-hmm. when he talks about the how Bartleby the Scrivener has died in jail and that he found out that he used to work in the dead letter office
2: yeah.
0: in Washington. So all these written documents that are supposed to go out to people all over the place that can never be delivered just like the, mm-hmm. the dead words in Melville's career that are really never in his, his career, more or less flounders after the failure of Moby Dick and he gives it up. And then of course we have William Faulkner who writing these works of genius one after the other with sound and a fury as a lay dying light in August, Absalom, Absalom. And I'm leaving out three mm-hmm. or four books he wrote in mm-hmm. between those and is largely ignored yeah. other than by critics and the, literary elite in the world. So maybe that gave him a little more comfort to know that he's in the, in that category. And of course, Ulysses was portrayed as being pornographic and it took a major landmark freedom of speech case in the United States so that Ulysses could be could mm-hmm. be sold stateside. Mm-hmm.
1: So I was just going to add that some writers need to wait for a readership to catch up to them. And yeah. at least yeah. McCarthy's later career did he lived long enough to see his right. reputation soar and to get the kind of acknowledgement and even to get the, the financial return on his decades of work. Right. So that story has a happier ending than Melville's did.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. For sure. And if he died at the age of Faulkner, we wouldn't have completed the Border That's Trilogy. Right. We wouldn't have The Road. We wouldn't have No Country for Old That's Men. Right. We wouldn't have Sunset Limited. I think I told you before we started recording that when I reread Moby Dick, when I reread Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner and other very complicated books, it's really not hard for me to go pretty quickly. If you've been through it a few times, you know what you're reading. And although they're famously difficult, Sutri always slows me down, much more so even the blood meridian, which is, of course, another work of genius in that I see things or I remember things or I notice things I hadn't really caught before. And it just always makes me take time to think it through and look at it. And I tend to flip back and go over sections again as well. And so it's always just wonderful mm-hmm. that way.
1: Yes, that's my experience too, reading it. You know, McCarthy rereads Melville's Moby Dick about every year or so. I wish I right. wish I could say I had had time to reread Sutry every year or so. Yeah. <laughs> I aspire to it. How, how about if we put it that way?
0: That's true. But again, with with Melville, if you're really looking at him operating at the very peak of his of his art, you've only got a few stories in one novel. Whereas with McCarthy, you're probably if I had to guess, you are probably reading four or five McCarthy books every year.
1: Trying to cycle through all of them. Yes, it is a more challenging, a more challenging thing.
0: I I tend to have the ones I go back to over and over and other ones that come up on a little bit more of a every few years intermittent cycle. Well, Diane, thanks again for coming back. It's been great to have another one of these discussions with you. And I think we'll be digging even further into such in upcoming episodes. So I hope you'll come back for one of those if we, if we continue on with that. I'd love to do that.
1: that. This, this has been great. Thank you so much, Scott.
0: Well, thanks again to our returning guest, Dr. Diane Luce, a founding member and past president of the Cormac McCarthy Society. She has co-edited two collections of articles on McCarthy and is the author of Reading the World, Cormorant McCarthy's Tennessee Period. She's currently working on a two-volume study using archival research McCarthy's writing life at Random House. She holds faculty emeritus status from Midlands Tech in Columbia, South Carolina. And thanks to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, and produced the music for Reading McCarthy. And special thanks to Peter Joseph and Corporal Punishment for allowing us to exert such a song. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, though in, we, in our hearts, we hope they'll see the light and follow along. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. If you're agreeable, it helps us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel Podcast, hosted by myself and Kirk Kernut. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Social animals, despite the evening redness in the West, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook.